0: Gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Daniel, <laughs> greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. The Dispatch, the Dispatch Media. Come on by uh, the Dispatch and check out our wares. Um, and if you uh like the podcast, and you're so inclined maybe you can go to itunes and those places and give us good reviews i've yet to hear exactly why that matters but um i do like to see the the good reviews and if you don't feel like giving us good reviews then really it it doesn't matter at all so just don't go there at all and um so uh, we're doing another solo one it's dog days of summer which has added meaning for me because my life revolves around so much around dogs um and because the downstairs air conditioning is broken in my house and i'm Kind of going barton Fink already here, um you know I'm fifty four seconds into this podcast by my clock, and I'm already sweating like a fat man at an all. You can eat pasta bar um so I guess we should start with the the downer news um Afghanistan it's not lost yet um but it is very difficult to see how um the Taliban doesn't take over the whole thing in the really near future. There may be some holding action in Kabul for a while. It may be that these troops that Biden is sending, um, to, uh, provide cover for an orderly withdrawal or retreat from the embassy, um, stay there a little longer and give the government in Kabul some time to breathe and, and figure out, um, how to stabilize itself a little bit. But literally, if you look at these timelines over the last you know couple of days of one provincial capital after another falling, um, it's just so clear what's going on here. You should also listen to the uh, emergency podcast uh that on the dispatch dispatch podcast channel for where they've had Tom Jocelyn come in and walk through all of this. Um, you'll learn a lot from it. It was really well done. I'm not quite done with it yet, but I listened to a bunch of it this morning anyway I mean. So clearly what, what happened was, um, as many of us, and I'm not going to say I was like a f- prominent voice in any of this, but you know, I'm on record for a while saying how oh, this is all folly. Steve has been, you know, you know, ringing the bell on this for a long time. So is Tom Jocelyn. And so, have, so have a lot of people, um, out there that, you know, the Taliban can't be trusted, shouldn't be trusted. They're not, you know, legitimate. Negotiating partners, um, they were playing Trump and Pompeo for fools and, uh, Pompeo took the lead in getting us into this, uh, you know, accord peace treaty or ceasefire, whatever it was called that allowed the Taliban to gave them a strategic pause so they could preposition weapons, um, troops. Uh, plans of all sorts to be ready to take over the entire country once the US left. And that's exactly what is happening now. That's why it's happening so fast. Um, It was utterly predictable, um, or as David liked to say, not only was it utterly predictable, it was widely predicted. And um, I think it's tragic. I was listening to the former ambassador to Afghanistan on NPR this morning, and he was making a point that You know, I've been making conversationally, but he made it very powerfully, which is that, um, you know, it's not just these interpreters and their families and a handful of embassy staffers who invested, who placed their bets on the US. He was like, look, there's an entire generation of people in Kabul and a couple of the other, you know, major cities who believed us when we said that we were there for the long haul, believed. The rhetoric about democracy believe the rhetoric about a better future and these people are judges they're television producers they're journalists they're um you know leaders in civil society um they may not have worked directly with the u.s but they represent um a vision of afghanistan being a normal country and the taliban has been has been executing them wherever they are assassinating them where they can when they can for the last year and now all of that is, is accelerating and, um, and so look, I, I've always understood why people, and I've said this a million times, why I understand why people want to get out. I think, it, you know, the, we were poorly served by three presidents this is the point, Tom Jocelyn makes is, you know, Barack Obama made it clear that American will to stay there was, um, buckling you know he made it clear he wanted out that's why he but he caved and did the surge but also announced you know a deadline for it and then trump came in and said he wanted out and pompeo made it clear that we were gonna um leave no matter what i mean and and pompeo said all sorts of ridiculous things like the taliban was going to help us fight al-qaeda um and help to help us destroy al-qaeda and then you have the biden administration come in and pick up the gift that Obama and really Trump left for him and said, we're ju- we're going to bug out and we're going to bug out by nine 11 on the 20 year anniversary of the nine 11 attacks, which I still to this day think was the single dumbest, um, unforced propaganda gift that one country has given to its enemies in my lifetime. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm open to suggestions from listeners of, of, dumber, pointless, uh, you know, uh, gifts to the enemy, um, in terms of propaganda than that. Um, you could make an argument about the January 6th thing, but it, but that's sort of a different creature. Um, you know, you could pick almost any other date and you could have still had the same policy, but instead you just gave the enemy this wonderful talking point, which they're already using. And so I find it, I found it all very, very, very depressing. Um, I think, you know, this was a triumph of a false narrative about this longest war when the war itself was really not a war anymore. It was, a, um, it was a strategic counterterrorism operation or whatever you want to call it, but it wasn't a dug in fighting war anymore. Um, and we've basically been, this is, mm. Whether you feel humiliated, whether the Biden administration feels humiliated, whether the, you know, the conservatives who supported Biden and supported Trump in doing this feel humiliated doesn't really matter to a certain extent on the international stage. This is a humiliation and, um, people who think humiliation and things like that, concepts like that don't matter. Um, I think really fundamentally don't understand, um, um, how sort of, international relations and foreign policy work you know i i don't want to get into a big thing about realism here but um you know n- nation states you know international politics is still very much like domestic politics it's it's about competing symbols competing perceptions of strength competing uh, notions of 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 honor and respect and deference and all of these kinds of things it is not as some, you know, some realists like to say, entirely about, you know, economic self-interest and all of these kinds of things, the number of things that nation states do that are not in their economic self-interest but are in their, for one of a better term, psychological self-interest is just overwhelming. Um, and since actually just he, he just died, if you ever get a chance, Don Kagan, I've, I think I've talked about it on here before. Don Kagan, who's a brilliant um, historian and intellectual um was the editor of a little book put out by ethics and public policy center like 20 something years ago called honor among nations where he talks about how you know a sense of honor is really what has driven an enormous number of wars um and international conflicts and that and that is not necessarily a condemnation right because honor a sense of honor matters on the international stage a sense of prestige matters And this was, this, this will be perceived as a humiliation of the United States all over the place. And the way the Biden administration, up until the ordering of these, these troops to go protect the embassy, the way the Biden administration was responding to this was so unbelievably embarrassing to me. Um, you know, talking about with a straight fricking face talking about how, you know, this is not in the Taliban's interest if they want to become part of the international community. Um, you know, it's, it's very similar to like the way they talk about China and climate change stuff It's like, you know, we have to convince these people, if they want to be respected members of the international community, they have to, you know, um, abide by, you know, caps on carbon emissions and, and I'm like, oh okay, you know, how about being a respected member of the international community by not rounding up hundreds of thousands or millions of Uyghurs and putting them in re-education camps or, you know, sterilizing them or using, you know, minority populations in slave labor camps, um, that hasn't really stopped, uh, these, you know, stopped the Chinese from becoming a member of the community of nations. And yet we're supposed to believe that, that um, if they refuse to put coal scrubbers on their factories, that is going to make them pariahs. Um, and that the Chinese care, I mean, again, if you're willing to round up people and put them in camps, um, you don't care that much about the opinion of the international community. And the same thing goes for the Taliban. Um, you know, when the United States starts begging them, please leave our embassy alone. Um, and saying, Hey, look, you know, this isn't the future that you want because you you'll be you know an outcast even though russia and china have already recognized the taliban essentially as the leaders of afghanistan um and making it seem like this is something that the taliban actually care about when they're already committing atrocities and executions and rounding up girls to marry off to soldiers i mean it is so naive and so idiotic and so i mean i feel humiliated by some of this stuff and i'm i'm pretty angry about it um and i'm also just i got i got no patience for you know donald trump had this statement where he said this wouldn't have happened w- if we withdrew and i was still president because we had you know uh measures in place that would have prevented that it's all garbage and nonsense this was you know inevitable um the second we pulled out precipitously and yeah this is reflects badly on generations of republican and democratic officials and generations of generals and military planners alike that they left it in this sorry estate and it reflects badly on a lot of people in afghanistan too but regardless there's even if there's lots of blame to go around it's just a terrible thing so anyway moving on um rick hess has this piece in the dispatch which i highly recommend you read Excuse me, let me see if I can call it up. I should have had it ready. Um, um, if I had a um, producer here in the office in my home office, I would um have him beaten for not having it ready. Um, where is it? okay actually, it was up yesterday. Um, but um in Oregon, I'll just read you this. Um, I'll read you the first couple of paragraphs. It's an education headline that even in 2021 demands a double take. Quote Governor Kate Brown signed a law to allow Oregon students to graduate without proving they can write or do math. Brown, Oregon's Democratic governor, has quietly signed Senate Bill 744 into law last month, discarding the requirement that high school graduates be able to demonstrate an ability to read, write, and do math at a high school level. A spokesman for Brown. Explained that this would, quote, this would benefit, quote, Oregon's Black, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Indigenous, Asian, Pacific Islander, tribal, and students of color, unquote. For those confused about the logic, he added that the state needed, quote, equitable graduation standards along with expanded learning opportunities and supports, unquote. Okay, so you should read the whole thing. It's not very long, it's, it's, you know, a two minute read. Um, a few things. First of all, I think this is one of the first times I've seen this where the, um, where they list, you know, Latino, Latina and Latinx X, uh, as three distinct groups, which I think is kind of fascinating. And and may be actually in some ways accurate if you think about it. Okay. So Latino. Even though in the same way, like the universal rights of man applies to women too. But Latino, you know, I think re- refer refers to all people of Latin descent, whether male or female, but it also as it's male gendered, so okay, Latino and Latina, fine. But then Latinx Latinx, the whole point of it was to be inclusive of both male and female people of Latin descent. So when you put Latinx in there, um as well as Latino and Latina, what you're doing is you're signaling out the tiny, tiny number of people who actually care or use that label, um, as a separate demographic group, which I think is just sort of interesting. And one could riff on that for a while, but you know, the, the morally outrageous thing about this is this idea that, um, blacks and Hispanics and Latinos and, Asian and Pacific Islanders, which is also interesting in a different way. Um, And also, what is the difference between a tribal student and an indigenous student? Um, I'm going to have to figure that one out. Um, But anyway, the idea that non whites, um, or specifically blacks and Latinos, or whatever, just non whites, somehow. Um, are so incapable of learning to read and write at a high school level that you need to get rid of the requirement that they learn to read and write at a high school level is by normal accounts racist, right? I mean, think of it this way. If I say, yeah, look, we just know, you know, black people and, and, and Hispanics and, and, you know, and those people, they're, they're not up to snuff and they can't do math and, and, and reading and writing the way white, white kids can. Um, you'd call me a racist, or at least someone would call me a racist, and, I, and, and, and fairly. And, um, but then if I oppose a measure that actually wants to codify that point of view into law and lower standards for everybody, and if I oppose that, then I'm also racist, you know well, which is it? And um, you know, I don't want to go all John McWhorter here, um but the worst thing in the world for minority and underprivileged kids is to dramatically lower standards um rather than expect them to uh strive to meet them, and I think you know this this sounds hard-hearted and complicated at the macro level when you're talking it doesn't sound hard-hearted or complicated to me but i understand why some people would think it sounds hard-hearted or complicated at the macro level when you're talking about sweeping education policy and all that kind of stuff um but just think about like every successful regardless of their politics whether it's ben carson you know or cory booker or whoever you know when think about these inspirational. African-American or Latino people who give, you know, some speech at the chamber of commerce or the Knights of Kiwanis or whatever. And they're talking about, they're thanking their mother or their father or their parents for demanding excellence from them for saying, you know, I don't care what the other kids say. I don't care if they say you're acting white. I don't care, you know, whether you want to go, you know, do these other things. Um, I expect more from you. And everyone applauds, isn't that great? Yay, mom, Mother's Day, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's if you think that's great and you applaud at that, why do you, would you conceivably condemn it when you took that same principle and applied it at scale? And look, I'm not one of these people. I think, I think the way people talk about education is profoundly flawed in this country. Um, so I'm not one of these people who talks about the brain race with China. That was one of Obama's big things. Um, um, I'm not someone who thinks everyone should go to college. Uh, uh, I, you know, I'll explain my views on education in a second. Uh, but I do think, you know, if we're going to have schools and we're going to have standards, um, having high standards where we expect our population, regardless of race, creed, or color to be able to read and write and do basic math strikes me as, 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 one of those things that should not be controversial in the slightest and um um and to say that somehow you're doing right by these kids by getting rid of the standards i think just it it it's such a problem because what it does is it it first of all it further stigmatizes you know people of color, um and it I know the the meritocracy is being, you know, poo-pooed a lot these days, but if you just think about it in terms of like, if you're an employer and it has now been announced, at least in Oregon, that the value of a high school diploma has been wildly downgraded because it no longer at least assures you that someone who has a high school diploma can read or do math, um, then what you're going to do is what a lot of employers already do is you're going to, you're, you're going to, uh, use your own test. And, um, and if the, you know, the basic logic of all of this is correct, then white kids and kids from more affluent, um, uh, privileged backgrounds, they'll do fine on that test. First of all, they'll be going to college anyway. But they'll, they'll do fine on those kinds of tests. And um, the kids who actually needed the public resources of public schools to do well on that kind of stuff will be ill-served by public schools, and they'll do badly on that test. And then the same people who thought this was a good idea will start saying how you know, businesses are discriminating against people of color when you could do all of those kinds of tests um, totally blind from behind a curtain. And it would still be the case that the kids who most needed help outside of their homes to be able to pa- be proficient at reading and writing and arithmetic will do badly. And it's their supposition, not my supposition, that those people are disproportionately, again, Black, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Indigenous, Asian, Pacific Islander, tribal, and students of color. I mean, how many students of color aren't already included in those other categories? I'm, I'm, I'm not clear. Anyway. Um, I just think it's, it's, this is like evil and immoral and stupid and counterproductive. Um, and it's, it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's sort of like my argument about, um, um, how part of the problem with our politics is the parties are too weak. So partisan activities and, um, organizing get outsourced to institutions that shouldn't be you know, organized around partisan endeavors, whether it's Planned Parenthood or the NRA or whatever. Um, this is, this is another sort of example of that where, you know, the education establishment in, in Oregon, um, is refusing to meet its basic obligations. Um, it's basic responsibilities as the primary source of education for young people, particularly young people without means. Um, and thinking that if they just, you know, fix the numbers, um, that somehow that fixes the problem. Well, I mean the pro- the number, you know, accurate numbers, low test scores, low admissions, whatever, low competency rates, whatever you want to call it. Wh- if the numbers are accurate, the numbers aren't the problem. The numbers are reflecting the problems. They're they're illuminating the problems. So if you make the numbers inaccurate, the problems still exist. They just get dealt with by other institutions. And um, um and this is just, you know, just a complete moral and political abdication of of responsibility. And it I, I just strikes me as grotesque. Switching gears again, uh, David Brooks had an interesting piece. I liked it a lot. I'm a big fan of David Brooks. Um, you know, I my disagreements with him and I know he bothers some people, but, um, you know, I learned things from David and even when I think he's wrong, I learn things from David because David, David's one of these guys who actually believes in, in, in making an argument and, and providing facts and evidence to support his claims. Um, and you can disagree with the weight he gives to some of the evidence, but at least he's providing it. It's just not one assertion after another. And he's wanting to change his mind. And I respect that in people. And um, even though you know it's something that gets you condemned in a lot of quarters these days. Um, so anyway, he has this long piece about revisiting his book, Bobo's in Paradise. I'm not going to get too deep. I still thinking about writing about this. Um, so I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds in it, but I, I recommend it. It's good. Um, and it does bring to mind the fact that I never, I, I loved that book. There's an enormous, enormous amount of useful stuff in that book and really interesting insights, but I always thought it was flawed. And I always thought the, the initial article that it was based on in the weekly standard was flawed. And I actually, wrote about it, um, gosh, almost twenty years ago. So, you know, in like ninety seven thereabouts, David goes to Burlington, Vermont. And he basically declares, you know, we have reached the end of history, more or less, that Burlington is affluent, it's prosperous, it's sure it's it's pretentious and in its affectations and its pieties and all this kind of stuff, but it's not particularly political. People have during this holiday from history, we have turned into aesthetic concerns and buying distressed furniture and whatever. And he makes fun of a lot of the Bobo stuff. And so Bobo, just so you know, is an abbreviation for, um, or a bastardization of bourgeois Bohemians. And, um, part of his argument, it's actually in some ways very similar to suicide of the West is that, um, Bohemianism is, um, Really, a term for the the permanence of the sort of the romantic spirit that I talk about in in Suicide of the West, and what the Bobos are is they've turned that sort of transgressive, romantic rebelliousness into bourgeois conformity in 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 all sorts of interesting ways. And anyway, again, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, and I think I already have. Um, But his point is. His point about Burlington back then was that everything was going great. Everything was going fine. These people weren't very political. And um, I just think he was wrong. And I've said this a million times. I think I've said it to his face. If not, I know I will. Um, You know, one of the things I think that has steered David wrong in the last 20 years on a few occasions is that he's such a nice guy and he hates the, the screaming, shouting, ugliness of American politics. And, um, uh, and so, and he hates the culture war stuff. And so sort of like the, the streetlight fallacy, he's, he spent a lot of time in the last 20 years looking for evidence that the culture war stuff was over because he wanted it to be over. Um, when in fact it wasn't. And so I went to Burlington a couple years after he wrote that piece and Burlington was among the most intense lefty, progressive, ideological, angry ideological places I'd ever been to. And, um, uh, and it was very, very political. Now what changed? I mean, I, first of all, I think it was more political than David realized even in 1997, but what had changed in the time since was you had the Clinton impeachment, you had the Iraq war, you had George W. Bush and Bush v. Gore and the Supreme Court thing and blah, 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 blah. And all these people got very, very angry and they, wore their anger on their sleeves and on their bumpers. Um, and, um, maybe if we can find it, uh, we'll put up in the show notes, the piece I did about Vermont, I got one fact wrong about Calvin Coolidge, which breaks my heart. But, um, and I remember it 18 years later, but, uh, the thing is, is like, this sort of gets to my point about, you know, um, the way a certain group, a, a certain strain of progressivism orients itself towards America. Um, the, the Burlingtoners in 1997 in Vermont, um, uh, seemed like they didn't care about politics in part because I would argue politics seemed to be going their way. And so was their 401, so were their 401ks and all of that kind of stuff too. Um, but nothing causes a freak out more among progressive types, than when the wheel of history seems not to be going in their direction and so during the bush years the very same people who seem to be only concerned about their you know their distressed wood coffee tables all of a sudden were talking about how we needed to have regime change here at home and um uh how did i get on this oh so anyway uh you know i'll just finish the point and then i'll get to the point i was going to make which was that you know, this, this dovetails with, you know, my thing about how, you know, one of the interesting reasons why 19, the 1930s and the 1960s are still the two major, uh, eras of liberal nostalgia. And when you, um, listen to how some people on the left talk about the 1930s and the 1960s, they they'll often say stuff like it was a time when we were all in it together. You know, it was a time when we were all marching in the same direction and we were making real progress and, um, we all felt like we were part of a cause larger than ourselves. And, you know, it was a time of renewed patriotism and all that kind of stuff. And the problem is, is that that's just not true. The 1930s saw incredible labor violence and unrest and riots. Not to mention massive hunger and unemployment. Um, it was a you know a time of profound political instability with demagogues running across the land. Um, similarly, the 1960s. I mean, my God, you had you know everything from political assassinations to domestic terrorism to massive race riots, tearing the country apart. And yet, to listen to you know like aging baby boomers, they talk about the 1960s as if it was this glorious time. And I'm not saying that you know, if you're a big believer in the civil rights movement and and the the story of heroic progressivism and all that kind of stuff, it's fine to be nostalgic for what your side, quote unquote, accomplished, or I mean, what your quote unquote side accomplished. That's fine, you know. Go ahead, make those arguments, but don't make it sound like everybody agreed with you, because the whole point is everybody didn't agree with you. You know, there was there were there were people on the other side of those fights outside of the Chicago convention in 1968, and And I think a lot of time, what passes for liberal nostalgia about a a simpler age when we were all in it together is really liberal nostalgia for times when, uh, they had the wind at their backs politically and that their movements felt like they were winning everything and that they had the power. Um, and they extrapolate from that something, uh, different than from what it really was. Um, so anyway, the, the Brooks piece. So. uh, the one of the points he makes in there is he goes and he, you know, he, he covers, he, he reviews some of the local coverage of those Trump boat parade things, the yeah. Trump regattas, or I can't remember what they were called, but you know what I'm talking about? Those high end boats that, uh, um, sort of red state, uh, upper class wine and cheese crowd, um, would hold for Trump with their Trump flags and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, the people in these Chris craft or whatever a nice model boat is these days, I'm not sure. Uh, high dollar people probably own car dealerships or, you know, are partners in law firms or CPA firms or own, you know, some retail thing, whatever. These are prosperous people, you know, lining up for Trump and they're treated as sort of uncouth, backward, embarrassing kind of yokels, sort of like those, um, the idiots with the guns in St. Louis outside their house. Um, and anyway, at one point, some local producer or reporter talks to some kid protesting the Trump boat regatta thing. Um, and the kid sounds like he is, um, you know, a professor of media studies at, at Brown or something. And probably, but he's probably, you know, worth a 10th of what some of these dudes with the boats are. Um, even though he's got a vocabulary that is, you know, 10 times better than some of the dudes with the boats. And, you know, David says, uh, you know, it's like, who's, who's the member of the superior. I can't remember the exact quote, but he says something along the lines of, you know, or asks something along the lines of, you know, who's, who's upper class here and who's not. All right. And I think that this is, one of the things that is increasingly going to be this, one of the central problems of understanding politics in the 21st century, or at least it points to it. And I talked a bit, at, about, a bit about this in the Wednesday G file, which I really liked. Indeed, I got a lot of great feedback about it, including from my wife, who usually as a matter of policy will not read the Wednesday G file because she has become ideologically committed to the idea that G files are only for Fridays and it is an outrage to call any other product of the week, a G file. And, um, it's a little weird. Um, but, uh, that she feels so strongly about this, but there you have it. And, um, but she read it and she really liked it and she, you know, doesn't always compliment everything that I, I write. Um, Anyway, uh, where was I? So I got into it a little bit in the G file about how um, these the sort of competing tribes of the culture war um, um, using traditional understandings of what class means really don't help very much. Um, you know, one of the reasons, I mean, uh, this goes back you know, it's a little history here. Um, and I'm sure I've talked about this here before, so I apologize, but, um, you know, one of the founding thinkers for the concept of American exceptionalism was this German political scientist, uh, Werner Sombart, and he famously asked this rhetorical question, why is there no socialism in America? And a big part of his answer had to do with the fact that America had no feudal past. Um, and to understand why there was socialism in Europe, you had to understand that a lot of it was really about, yes, it was class warfare between haves and has nots and workers and capital and, and the bourgeoisie and all that kind of stuff. But all of that was downstream historically from the old feudal caste systems and, and, and aristocratic systems and so the economic class arguments um, mapped over to a large extent the old social class systems that existed in Europe for millennia and we just didn't have any of that in the United States Uh, one of the great things the founding fathers did is get rid of titles of nobility and aristocracy um, uh, which was so unbelievably radical at its time and um you know, I have this stuff in suicide of the West about this, you know, Daniel Bornston. Um, I can't remember in which one of those, you know, he has those books, the discoverers, the explorers. Uh, no, no, not that one. It's the American books about the national experience, the democratic experience, whatever. In one of them, he talks about how like European dignitaries coming to the United States in the early 1800s, um, were, uh, kind of freaked out. Um, by the fact that you couldn't tell by the way people dressed what class or occupation they had, you know, in Europe, even after, um, suffrage and, you know, and the, the dissolution of serious aristocratic systems, you still had an effect things like sumptuary laws. I mean, there, they weren't laws anymore. They were more like customs, but if you were a young lady and you worked in the dairy, you wore a certain outfit. If you were a butcher, you wore a certain outfit. If you were in construction, you wore a certain outfit and not just for work. I mean, I know that in America you see a guy with one of those reflective vests and like a yellow jumpsuit kind of thing, you know, he's working sort of, you know, uh, road construction or something like that, or some other kind of construction. I mean, it's what they wore because people were so poor. You wore basically your work clothes for most of the week. And, um, and it was a, it was like a coding system. a Dewey decimal system for social status. And when americans when when dignitaries came to America and they would walk around our cities it, they couldn't tell if you were first of all they couldn't tell what job you did they couldn't tell if you were rich or poor or whether you mattered or not and I think that's one of the great, great things about America. It's one of the things I love about America because I think that general phenomenon is still with us today insofar as the best part about the American character or one of the best things about the American character is that we're more inclined than most other countries to take people as we find them. I know that in the national conversation, the intellectual conversation, the the academic conversation, we reduce people to all these identity politics categories. Um, and we think that they have incredible explanatory value, but in your everyday life, you don't reduce people to their skin color for the most part, particularly if you're a, what I would call a good American. You know, you judge people by how they present themselves to you, how they re- how they interact to you and Americans are much more open to giving people a chance to demonstrate their individual character rather than leaping to conclusions about, you know, the kind of person they are based upon their membership in some abstract category. And I think that's a great and wonderful thing. Um, so anyway that's not to say in the 20th century or even in the 19th century, you know, we didn't have rough approximations of class. Um, certainly like during the industrial era, um, or when something like one in three Americans worked on a farm, you know, you had notions of, of you know, the working class meant something, right? If you have just a vast swath of Americans working in factories, to one extent or another, are working in farms to one extent or another. Um, it's it doesn't have class doesn't have the urgency and the, the the meaning that it did in Europe, um, particularly when in Europe, thanks to syndicalism and all sorts of things, those sorts of differences were written into law to reinforce cultural stuff. But, you know, during the heyday of big labor, it's fine to talk about people who are, you know, you know members of labor, you know, and like, that's what Bernie Sanders is so nostalgic for is, you know, the, the days when being part of a union, being a union household was a big part of, of your identity. And, um, and those kinds of understandings of class, again, that were sort of mostly kind of like marketing, um, concepts for politicians. Um, they existed and were very, very strong. Most of my life, most of your life, you know, uh, most of the 20th century, and um, and one of the big stories of the last, you know, 50 years is how less and less those kinds of things matter. Um, the FDR coalition, which we talk about a lot around here, you know, has been bleeding the white working class to the Republicans for a generation and a half, something like that. Um, maybe 50 years, uh, you know, Richard Nixon made serious inroads with the teamsters and, 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 and organized labor. And I think since then, Republicans have been basically splitting more or less union households, even if the unions overwhelmingly still gave their money, the political leadership still gave their money to, um, to Democrats and the rise of, and power of government sector unions, public sector unions, is part of that story um uh you can call those people a class in some sort of uh you know intellectual you know like in, in, in as shorthand for a you know a group of people with a common interest which is one of the standard understandings of class but there is just culturally something massively different different between Steel workers, truckers, roofers uh bricklayers, that kind of thing, and um education unionists uh you know federal worker unions um you know the managerial class in in various bureaucracies those are unions but they don't they just simply don't have the same worldview they don't you know they they are and I don't mean this necessarily pejoratively, although if you want to take some of that with it. That's fine. They have a much more parasitic view of the economy. They are not participants in the economy the way say, uh, steel workers are, they are rent seekers of, of the economy. They, they extract rents through regulations and, and not just economic rents, but I I think sort of status or psychological rents. They, they want to be in charge of the economy. And, you know, this is the new class argument, which I keep, you know, falling backwards into. And so anyway, my point is, is that as you look at the way our politics is divided these days, you hear a lot of Republicans, you know, thundering on about how it's us versus the elites. And, um, and we'll put it up. I also wrote about this in a piece a while back, a G file a while back called, uh, royalty, real and imagined. And we'll put that in the show notes too. But like. Hold on. Dogs are barking. So like Ted Cruz is married to a director of Goldman Sachs. He was a clerk on the Supreme Court. He was what? Solicitor General of Texas. Um by any of the old understanding of what an elite, a member of the elite is, Ted Cruz and he's a US senator, right? The most exclusive club in the world. All that's garbage. Um he's a member of the elite. You know, and when he thunders about how the elite is against us, you know, I don't know what the hell he's talking about because uh, I shouldn't say I don't know what the hell he's talking about. I just think it's it's crude and kind of dumb, and similarly, like Elizabeth Warren has her anti elite you know the oligarchs, the millionaires and billionaires, as Bernie Sanders likes to put it, um, and she makes it sound like you know she's on the side of the little guy and the working man and all that kind of stuff, even though she is you know, a dashboard saint of the overeducated, you know, uh new class types of the meritocracy. And so what we have in America are two competing elites pretending that they are spokesmen or members of the downtrodden classes fighting against um entrenched power above. And that's not it. It's just it's not the the I'm not saying the two sides are perfectly symmetrical. Conservatives have very little control over the commanding heights of the culture. Conservatives are locked out for the most part from Hollywood. Um, um, And by that, I mean, by that, I don't mean there aren't conservatives who work in Hollywood. There are actually quite a few conservatives who work in Hollywood, but the products they produce, um, it's very difficult for them to have conservative messages. in them. it's very difficult for them to speak openly about their conservatism the way it's easy for liberals to sp- in Hollywood to speak openly about their liberalism or the progressivism. Um, conservatives aren't completely locked out of academia, but the same dynamic applies. It is very difficult to be openly conservative, um, in, in elite educational circles. Um, and if you are conservative, you have to be incredibly circumspect and careful about how you talk in ways that progressives just don't have to be careful. um, And you can go through a lot of elite institutions like that. That's all true. At the same time, like I have a very hard time listening to people talk about how, um, you know, like if you're, if you're Tucker or if you're Sean Hannity, you're a multimillionaire, um, who has the most popular among the most popular platforms in the media, forget conservative media, just in the media, you have among the most popular platforms loudest megaphones out there. And yet the way those guys talk is as if they are also members of the downtrodden who are beset on all sides. Um, and anyway, I mean, I can go on about this for quite a while, obviously. Um, I guess one way to think about it as I'm trying to flail to find the ripcord to get out of this, this, this cul-de-sac is, um, yeah let's put it this way remember uh if you listen to the conversation i had with jonathan adler earlier this week and we started talking about dematerialization i think dematerialization is a fascinating topic i really want to get um what's his face mcafee on here is it john mcafee um who wrote the book on dematerialization uh to talk more about this stuff um like say, so if you didn't listen to it what the gist of it was is that We are increasingly just literally using less stuff. We're getting richer. There's more economic activity, but there's physically less stuff that we're using in terms of just net output. We're using, I mean, I don't have those charts in front of me, but it's really amazing how these curves are all bending down. We're using fewer metals. We're using less wood. We're using all sorts of physical stuff less and doing more with the stuff that we're using. Um, and, uh, and so just that I, if you can get your head around that idea, that fact and think about what that means in 20, 30 years, and then think about what that means to the old Malthusian model about, uh, you know, running through resources and how, uh, economic activity has uh, natural, there are limits to growth, as they used to say in the 1970s, um, because uh, there are finite resources and, um, and therefore we have to sort of pull back and regulate, you know, our economic growth to keep us from overusing or exhausting resources. And there are some finite resources out there still right now. I mean, technically, I guess it's all finite because we're on one planet, but the thing is if this dematerialization trend continues, that sort of worldview just seems weird, you know, less and less in touch with reality. And I think by way of analogy, were I, thinking I wasn't going to get there by way of analogy, the same thing applies to this class stuff. Um, there, there are lots of people, particularly on the left who, but I, I should say in a growing number on the right, who think that these categories of class that were staples of 1950s political conversation still apply. And, um, you know, in some cases, in some states, in some ways, you know, I'm not saying they've lost all their juice or their explanatory value, but sort of like the dematerialization thing, it's shrinking by the year. And instead, what you're getting is two different worldviews, um, led by two separate competing elites who are vying for power. And it is not this whole sort of up down notion of, you know, all the people at the top think one way and all the people at the bottom think another way. That's a very 18th, 19th century, quasi Marxist, you know, class driven understanding of the world that like your objective economic status determines your worldview um it wasn't true in the 20th century it's one of the reasons why fascism was more popular than communism in a lot of countries is uh because it recognized that class consciousness wasn't the be-all and end-all of everything um but it's even less so today and i think it's going to be less so going forward you aren't going to be defined by your job or your income. You're going to be defined by a set of values and orientations towards um, the government, towards uh, each other that are going to determine, you know, which side of the culture war you're on. If you think that that, I'm sure there are many people who are richer than me and I'm not rich, but I'm sure there are people who have a lot more money than me who think that that Oregon idiotic education stuff Is fantastic, and I know there are a lot of people who are richer than me who think it's idiotic. And the point is, is that looking at economic, you know, status doesn't tell you much about where you're going to come down on those kinds of questions. It's going to be about this other worldview kind of kind of stuff. And it's what's what's interesting to me, or part of what's interesting to me, as I ramble on is that people on both sides of the political divide these days don't want to let go of these old labels and categories because um, they give them power, right? If, if, if everything is instead a battle of competing elites, well, what use is that to Elizabeth Warren and to Ted Cruz? You know, you know like, I think my elite faction or my faction of elites should seize the reins of power and run things is, um, is not a rallying cry for, you know, the small dollar donors. Um, you need to say that our team is being frozen out of everything. And if you support me, I will charge the barricades and bring power to the people. And that's what Elizabeth Warren says. It's what AOC says. It's what Ted Cruz says. It's what Josh Holly says. And they're there are major cultural differences in worldview between the tribes that or the troops that they reco- they, they claim to represent, but at the elite level, um, it has nothing to do with anything like um, you know, uh, you know, being members of the downtrodden or any of that kind of stuff. And even at the you know at the uh, the people the bulk of the people probably giving a lot of these small dollar amounts. If you looked at their tax returns, you probably wouldn't be able to tell that much difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. I'm sure you could in certain cases, and certain circumstances, Um, it'd be interesting exercise to do, but the cable news addicted Democrats and the cable news addicted Republicans who are likely to get fired up by something that they see on TV and give 50 bucks to a politician, they're... They're, they're very close to members of the same socio socioeconomic status in large part, I would guess. Um, but they come from different sides of this, this cultural divide and we don't have the vocabulary yet to describe that divide except in these sort of stark apocalyptic terms. And I think that's one of the reasons why everything is getting more and more apocalyptic. All right. So I'm, I'm to rambling about that what else um very quickly the ap this morning <laughs> had a story saying that the biden administration is uh thinking about it uh, has not decided to do it yet and i'm hoping that they don't do it at all um but they're they're one of the things they're considering is requiring in uh proof of vaccination for interstate travel And like literally like to go from Indiana to Illinois, you have to have proof of vaccination. Now, look, I want to be very clear. I am very much in favor of stepping up incentives and even some mandates for vaccines. I got no problem with Amy Comey Barrett's decision to defend. What was it? I think it was the university of Indiana um, requiring vaccination. And I think the people responding to her by calling her Amy Commie Barrett was what one, one idiot I saw said, um, the idea that somehow this is some grave betrayal of, you know, Trump nation or conservatism, I just think is so profoundly idiotic. Um, I got no problem with the U S army requiring vaccination. I got no problem with colleges and universities and schools requiring vaccination i got no problem with teachers unions requiring vaccination um but this idea is really really dumb and it's not dumb for the reasons that you know like the kirchleckers of the world are going to get into about how this is like you know the beginning of the totalitarian takeover and all that kind of stuff it's just dumb because it's going to give free rein to a lot of that kind of paranoid stuff but more importantly it's just dumb Because it's utterly unworkable. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to have checkpoints with like German shepherds and squad cars ready to like, you know, radio ahead and have those tire popping chains put across the road if somebody doesn't have the right, doesn't have a vaccination card? I mean, how, how long are you going to, how much traffic are you going to be willing to tolerate under that regime? Um, and to what end? I mean, talk about something that would grind America, the American economy, back to a halt, stopping interstate travel. Um, and so, I mean, I'm hoping it was like some idiot said it. The AP reporter, Zeke Miller, was a good reporter, you know. Probably, you know, said, "Well, I got to write that down." They, they said they're talking about it, um, you know, and maybe it's a shot across the bow somewhere. But um, I just, I, it just be such a stupid bad idea um and wouldn't get us closer to what where we you know we need to go and frankly I'm 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 buoyed by a lot of the polling that we've seen saying that um Americans are more and more in favor of tough vaccine requirements so we can get back to normal I think that's good but you know you got to use your head about some of this stuff um and um Oh, yeah. You know, I've been meaning to make this point. I'll just make it very quickly. You know, when I was saying how, uh, if you banned interstate travel without proof of vaccination, it would, you know, it would be giving a free talking point to, um, the people who want to be hysterical about all this kind of stuff. It kind of reminds me of, um, remember a couple of weeks ago? I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it was a month ago. Biden had that statement where he said, you know, we're going to go door to door. Um, if we have to, to get people information about how they can get vaccinated or something like that. And all the usual suspects on the right completely freaked out. Madison Cawthorne said that this was like a trial run to get your guns and your Bibles. And this was the beginning of the end. And you know, all of the, you know, there, there are some of these guys on Twitter who insist that I'd be mad on their timetable about their issues in their way um you know they went nuts at me for not condemning this and you know prattled on about how I wrote liberal fascism and all this kind of stuff and you know some of these people out there they're kind of like the um the the AIDS ribbon bullies from Seinfeld you know who who won't wear the ribbon um you know they they monitor my twitter feed um and are outraged that I wasn't outraged on their timetable about something Um, and my, and the, the part of the assumption is, is that I am supposed to monitor breaking news in Twitter 24 seven and respond immediately in the approved way, according to the new popular front on the right. Um, or it's proof that Trump broke me or I have gone squishy or whatever. And just, you know, to let people know I'm just spending less time on Twitter And I'm reserving my responses to things for where I can write about them thoughtfully or talk about them thoughtfully. Um, Oh, but anyway, so like this, this door to door thing, all these people were talking about how this was like, um, proof of the totalitarian impulses of the Biden administration. And this, you know, we're heading towards a dictatorship and that this is like the worst thing in the world and all this. And, um, people started talking about second amendment remedies and yada, yada, yada. And, and look, I mean, I, I, some, I mean, I, depending on who we're talking about and what was said, some of it falls into this sort of American sort of, um, antibody against tyranny stuff. And I can live with some of it because some of it is healthy. You know, Charlie Cook and I used to get into big arguments about this years ago about, um, people freaking out about, minor, minor things. And Charlie likes it more than I do because, um, it's a way to keep government honest. And I, I can see the point and it's not like I I reject all of it, but it just occurred to me while we're talking about all this stuff that, um, if the premise of like Madison Cawthorn and these people were true, that, um, this was the beginning of Biden's military sort of takeover of the United States of America um, would a algae plume of outrage on Twitter really stop it. I mean, just think about it for a second, right? I mean, we're like a month, let's say it happened a month ago. If these people were right, this was really sort of the beginning of the mobilization for the evil forces of the left to really take over America and all this kind of stuff. Do we believe that, like they would be waved off by a few hundred people freaking out on Twitter and a couple people yelling on a cable show from sending agents of the state door to door, blah 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 blah. Um, I mean, the fact that you know the Biden administration didn't do it, it wasn't a big deal. In fact, I shouldn't say they didn't do it; they'd already been doing it for months, which is basically like funding civil society groups and state-based health agencies to go around handing out literature. It was never, you know, about some sort of draconian imposition of martial law crap to begin with. Um, and, uh, but if, if those kinds of, you know, flight 93 ish paranoid fantasies had any validity to them, you'd have to assume that they would be willing to, you know, uh, roll the tanks over, um, you know, the, angry keyboard warriors of Twitter who were causing a fuss or maybe the angry keyboard warriors were wrong to begin with. And this is sort of like, you know, the problem, uh, you know, Chris Darwalt likes to tell the story about how, you know, Roger Ailes had a, one of his problems with Glenn Beck when Glenn and I like Glenn, I go back with Glenn. I got my serious disagreements with Glenn, but, um, uh, you know, Glenn towards the end of his run at Fox every day was another apocalypse was on the way. Another, you know, calamity was, um, just hours away. And, and apparently Ailes, according to Chris used to say, you know, the problem with constantly selling the end of the world is at some point the world has to end. And, um, when you hear all these people constantly saying, this is proof of the next thing that is going to be the end of America and all this kind of stuff, there's very little, you know, sort of, Hey, whatever happens of that, you know, that prophecy that we were all doomed. Um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, Trump's in two weeks, we'll have all of this stuff or, or Mike Lindell is now constantly saying in another week, you know, you'll have all the information about how the, all the data and proof that the election was stolen if you pay a little more attention to this stuff um and you you have a little bit longer of a memory for it you'll start to be able to develop some muscle memory about being able to tell that this stuff is more performative than it is, you know, prophetic. Um never mind, you know, serious? Um um and Anyway, I I just think that like, again, I I keep returning to this as I think that one of the things that's really tearing apart the country and, and Charlie and I talked about this a bit is the just rampant daily barrage of apocalypticism of saying that this spells the doom of America. And, um, and I agree with Charlie entirely. The left does it a lot and it's been doing it longer. Um, you know, I mean the net neutrality stuff about, I was going to be the end of like literally the end of civilization. Um, uh, and the way that, you know, a lot of them are talking about the end of democracy and all these kinds of things. I think, you know, there is, there's a deep and abiding addiction to, um, you know, sort of secular eschatology these days for want of a better word. And, um, and, I don't know, I mean maybe it's worth thinking about that part of it is derived from a lack of traditional meaning in our lives that um we become addicted to talking about and thinking about end times. And you know, there's a reason why basically every major religion in the world has some major conception about, you know, what happens at the end of, you know, time or end of humanity or end of life or whatever. And it's I think it's part because our brains there's something that just fascinates us about that stuff. And it helps or it's one of the things that gives us a sense of where our place is in the in the universe. And when the role of traditional religion starts to, to secede, um, there's still a, a hunger or an appetite or a market demand for that stuff. And that's why you get everything from zombie apocalypse stuff, which you know, again, I like um, to, you know, the end of democracy or the end of America or flight 93 and all that kind of stuff. And you just might want to take a little time and think, you know, why do I find, why, why do I find this stuff so compelling? And why do, was it something that takes up such a big part of my brain? Um, when the last 20 predictions of, of doom and apocalypse didn't come through and I can't even come true. And I can't even remember half of them. You know, um, I think this is one of the problems with the climate change stuff is that these people are so addicted to the rhetoric of apocalypticism and of, of, um, existential and you know, and, and extinction level threats that they, they don't want to talk reasonably about what can be done, what can't be done or, what can only be done over a long time horizon um, because they're more addicted to the juice of of the freak out than they are to an actual public policy solution of some kind and um and I think this is just a problem with American culture these days. I did not plan on coming here, but that's where I am, and um that's all I got so now I got to go write a G file and do some other stuff and um and squeegee out my shirt because I'm sweating here um and uh I would normally I would say you should go listen to the the latest glop, which we recorded yesterday. That's the Goldberg Long and Padoritz podcast. We're technically called Glop culture. Get it. And um there's some interesting stuff in there. And usually it's, you know, the last few have been really funny. This one, it's a darker, weirder thing. And um uh and it kinda went off the rails a little bit. So it's more of a refined, refined is probably the wrong word, more selective audience for this one. Um, But it is out there, you can find it out there. And um, other than that, I'll see you next time.